Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. Martin Luther King Jr. purportedly said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. It's a sentiment I recalled when reading The Final Strife, the emotionally charged debut from Sarah El Arifi. Grappling with ideas of colonialism, endemic prejudice, and a revolution that seems doomed to fail, Sara uses classic fantasy tropes and turns many of them on their head. We wanted to ask her about creating a fictional society based on physical discrimination that isn't immediately visible, centering black female experiences, and finding lightness in blood magic. So we are very, very excited to welcome Sara on the podcast today. So if you would like to introduce yourself to our listeners, Sarah. Hi guys. Well, wow, what an introduction. I actually got shivers. Um, yeah, so hi, I'm Sarah Elarifi. I'm the author of The Final Strife, which is my debut book. It's coming out very shortly. It is all about blood and blood magic. It centers three different women with three different blood colors and they attempt to burn down the empire. So high achievers. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a tiny thing, just a tiny thing that they have to do, burn down the empire, you know, um, but find out if they actually do it in the novel. <laughs> I know if they do it, but you know, it's, it's, it's worth like figuring out. The final strife features a rigid caste system, but unlike many such systems and fantasy stories, yours is based on the color of blood, you know, something which can be hidden. You know, I don't walk around going, Oh my God, like her blood's very blue or she's I don't know you know it's not like uh I I, okay I'm gonna get a Star Trek reference in really early tonight (laughs) and Lucy can groan uh but you know I roll (laughs) (laughs) can't you know Vulcans you can't tell that they've got green blood just by looking at them (laughs) excellent yes I'm excited for that early Star Trek reference anyway (laughs) so how does prejudice based on something you know air quotes, invisible, change the social structure of discrimination? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think one of the things that I definitely approached the novel when I started writing, I I knew that I wanted to have an all-black cast, but I also wanted to represent oppression and race in some way. And the thing is with race is that it's an entirely social construct, right? We we have decided that race exists based on skin colour, which you know, it has absolutely no biological grounding. Um, the genetic code of a white person and a black person can actually be very similar. So, you know, it's an entire social construct that we've come up with. For example, we could decide that race is blue-eyed people and brown-eyed people. We could decide that hair colour is is the, the visible um, difference of race. And so for me, I was really kind of playing around with that concept and thinking about, well, because race is literally made up, how do you represent that in a different way whilst commenting on it? And that's why I thought, you know what, blood colour is really interesting. It has that, you know, same kind of vibe, you know, it's a colour, it's very, very clear parallel there. Um, But at the same time, it's under the surface, Uh, you can't necessarily see it. And 
that was important to me because I wanted to have an all black cast. And how do you then show that difference in race or caste system through a- another means, I guess? Okay, I'm sorry, but I've just got another Star Trek reference. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> do it. No, well, it's just, it's like the, um, there's an episode of original series and the Star Trek nerds out there will know the name of the episode, which off the top of my head, I do not. But it's the one with um, the, there's two kinds of aliens on this one planet. And one of them has black on the left side and white on the right side. And the others have white on the left and black on the right. And they're fighting this war because they hate each other because they're different. And, you know, and, and the entire thing was basically to make a comment about the, the race riots that were happening in the sixties without being pulled up by the MacArthur era, you know, rules about what you could and couldn't say on television. And yeah, it's, it's interesting when you basically, we are all the same and yet we still manage to find things that are different and ways to discriminate yeah absolutely I think it was it's it's all about difference and I was like how do I show that in a a, in a new way in a subtle way whilst it's obviously being a, a parallel to our world the the fact that it's not something that's immediately visible it feels a little it it's a different one you know because obviously prejudice in our world it happens just with a glance, you know, I can be walking down the street and, you know, make a judgment about someone yeah, based just on what I see. But this kind of discrimination, I mean, it has a, a different kind of structure and, and work. Like how, how did you sort of approach working with a discrimination that, that couldn't be based just off a, a casual glance? Yeah. It's interesting because then that's when the other elements of the world start to intersect, like, um, you know, gender, um, wealth, uh, social order, etc. And I think that's when um, I started playing around with things that existed in our world, such as li- literal branding, you know, um, on on the, the wrists of dusters who are the blue blooded to make it very clear, you know, they are labourers. And that is something that is expected People can see that brand and they're expected to have that brand. They get branded at the age of 10 years old, which again was really interesting to me because actually anyone 10 years younger, at 10 years or or younger, literally you couldn't tell the caste system apart or or the the race apart, Um, which is really interesting because I, I, I think there's something about the innocence of childhood that discrimination isn't really there. Yes, we have prejudice, but it's very much brought, you know, as we grow up, we we learn about that in the social order. So the the idea that ten years old and younger, you don't, you know, I remember never really understanding. I didn't know that I was a, a black woman um, until you know when I was I was I remember distinctly remember I was twelve years old. I went into school, and um, we had just moved from um, the Middle East to a village outside of Sheffield, which obviously was very very different, um, and. It was the first moment I realised, oh, I am other, I am different. And someone used uh, the N-word at me. And I had never heard that word before. I was 12 years old. I was like, I don't know what that is. Um, and so there's there's something that society does that you, you learn as you get older. And so that was something that I was definitely commenting on in 
Because the thing is with the final strife, it's so much of it is me. So much of it is my experience. It was a cathartic process as I wrote it because I had tried for, oh, I think it was actually about 12 years to publish another book. And I'd really, really worked hard at it. And one day I realized that the book I'd been writing was just, was insane that I was trying to write it. The main character was um, a boy. He was white. He was rich. He had magical powers. He went to a magical school. It's also very sounding, very familiar. And I realized I can't, I, I'm not the person to, I shouldn't be telling the story. And it was re- I realized that because I had just copied everything I'd seen, everything I'd seen in adult fantasy, everything I'd seen in YA fantasy. And so the final strife was very much a start from the beginning, figure out who you are and write it on the page. Like, unfortunately, it's very, maybe not unfortunately, but it, it is a self-indulgent experience I had in, in, in writing this. And that's why every single thing is so pointed. It's so, everything is placed for a reason, which was amazing for me because I, I literally grew as a person as I finished The Final Strife. <laughs> that's pretty, yeah, it's powerful. Going back to what you were saying about, you know, the innocence of children and the way we kind of learn these prejudices. I, you know, I'm middle-class, white, straight, cis woman, so I have been so privileged in my life. But I moved from Australia to Texas when I was nine years old. And obviously Australia is incredibly racist and has a lot of issues, but it was an entirely different level in Texas. And it was something that I really struggled to comprehend when I got there. And, you know, things like other mothers were pulling my mother aside and telling her, you know, Ooh, you shouldn't let your daughter play with her. You know, my best friend was an African-American girl and the other one was um, a Hispanic girl and they were my best friends. I didn't care what they looked like or where they were from or, you know, any of this stuff. And, and, you know, my mother was like, she can play with who she wants to play with. But what was really interesting was that uh, I was, I don't know, 23 or something and caught up with one of my friends from Texas when we were in university. And she told me that at one point I stood up to some bullies who were being horrible to her about her, her race. And she was like, oh, you know, it meant so much to me. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm really glad it meant something to you but I really don't think I understood that it was racially triggered at the time because I feel like I would have remembered that I probably just thought hey you're being mean to my friend oh yeah back up. yeah like absolutely <laughs> there's so there's so much I I look back on now and I'm like oh okay oh, that is racist oh okay I'm like and it, it is the the kind of the softness of youth that you don't you don't always see those things but then you know it's growing up and I'm learning okay I'm a, I'm a black person was really you know it was a hard thing to comprehend in this world Ah, so you know now we're on it's a really bright subject sometimes (laughs) (laughs) so you with your caste system while most of the differences are to do with blood color there are also some immediately visible physical difference but not natural ones And this I found really interesting because it's not necessarily, you know, something you see so much of. So how does discrimination or or the the structures of it and how do you you deal with a kind of a society that actually creates a physical difference in which to discriminate against people? Like it's 
Yeah. It's quite, I mean, that's, that's dark yeah. for one thing. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's really going the extra mile there, but <laughs> you know, like how does that change it? Because yeah, it's people doing it to other people, not just discriminating, but actually creating what they then discriminate against. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's so many layers to the the concept of uh, the ghosting. So the ghostings are the clear blooded. They are maimed at two months old. They have their their hands removed and their tongue removed. It was a really interesting. It's, it's, a, it's very dark. There's an entire race that has been completely oppressed physically. And that was one manifestation of it. This was literally a, a physical sign of oppression. And that was something that, you know, very clearly is, is a metaphor for. On the flip side, I was also, every, everything in the final strife, everything, all of the violence has its roots in history. And like I was saying about the final strife, it was a, a cathartic and a difficult process for me as I and as I grew as a person as I wrote it. And that was because I was also delving into history um, and my heritage and the things that I had completely never been taught. Uh, King Leopold II, he was one of these people that I'd heard of in history. I knew he was a guy. I knew, oh, it's this white guy that did stuff in the Congo. When I actually delved into, into it more and found out um, how much the Belgian Congo was oh, just horrifying, um, that there were estimated to up to, although there's lots of conflicting um, accounts, but estimated around 8 million uh, black people had their uh, hands chopped off because essentially hands became a mode of um, currency. It became people in the, the Belgian army would use bullets against uh, when they were hunting because they were never given enough food. So essentially those to prove they had used uh, a bullet on, they weren't allowed to hunt. So to prove they'd use a bullet on a slave, they had to chop off a hand of a slave. And then uh, King Leopold II asked for them to be smoked and sent to him. So he had a like millions of hands smoked and sent to him, which is just wild. And it's that blip in my knowledge and my understanding of what had happened. You know, I, I know about the scramble for Africa. There's so, there's so much that I had been skirted around in, in the British curriculum, but I'd never fully learned about. And so for me, the ghostings represent a lot of that as well. Every single violence that is wrought in the novel is based on is based on um, truth, and uh, so having that physical difference, that actual oppression shown, was so important to me because it was also kind of a a nod to what has been stolen from our history, that's been silenced from our history, and it's it's the physical silence of of an entire race. Deep stuff today, guys. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I was just thinking it's, um, no, it's dark, but it's good that we're talking about it because that's something I'd never heard of at all. And you'd think that something as horrific and, well, frankly, bizarre as that would have made it, you know, not into the curriculum, perhaps, but at least into some article that I have, you know, I'd have stumbled across later yeah. on, but I just haven't heard of it at all. And that's the, the worrying thing, because how many more stories exactly. like that? Are, are censored yeah that's that's the scary thing and finding out this actually spurred on something in me and I I decided I was lucky enough to be able to go back to university uh for the first time in 
over a decade um, and I'm studying African studies and that has just been a complete you know it's just genocide after genocide um so it's really dark but it's it's been really amazing and and, and um informative in in helping me build the worlds that I build talking about world building the main source of discrimination in your world is also the basis of your magic which is uh, revolving around blood and blood magic uh is i suppose you could say there are tropes attached to the use of blood magic um Obviously, the one I think of is, I don't know if you've played Dragon Age, but... <laughs> no, never. I, oh, it's so great. Uh, yeah, I, I always play a blood mage in Dragon Age. <laughs> but again, blood magic in pretty much every, almost everything um, I've encountered in it, it's practised by maleficers or sorcerers who are outcasts from society because it's dark and it generally revolves around another person's suffering so you know it does come laden with it with expectations to, you know that it might be something that is is problematic um or certainly belongs to a certain type of person so what tropes were you aware of uh, when you were creating your magic system? And were you, you know, did you set out to turn any of them on their heads? So um, tropes is a big thing for me because I actively, again, I, I, I was writing with my eyes wide open. I was like, okay, tropes. I want to tackle tropes. Everything I wrote in the final strife was so self-aware. I was like, okay, enemies to lovers okay the mentor let's have basically every trope I thought about and went through I, I want to say it was like kind of a natural process but I was really very much thinking about how how I want to subvert them and I think with the blood magic what was really interesting about that because it is it is it has dark connotations there's also something inherently almost tribal about it and that was really interesting to me because I thought there is this kind of trope of the African tribe that, you know, um, sacrifices and reads the intestines of chickens. And w whereas, you know, a lot of that is based on actual indigenous practice, it's it's never done well. And so I, I, I just wanted to kind of explore that through a language based um, system that used blood and it's just so visceral. And because the, raw, the, the world that I was creating was quite raw and gritty, I think having it was it was really fun to play around with like the the idea of the inkwell so that's the kind of the metal cuff that that comes over the writing hand of uh the user and essentially a stylus then pierces into the vein um held in place by the inkwell and then the user then writes um in their blood and also from a practical level when i was building this magic structure i was thinking okay I, I need this to be limited. I need, like, I know some people do limitless magic, like Rebecca Kwong. Fantastically, I cannot, I cannot, I cannot track it down. You know, at, so at one point, everyone was flying in my book. You know, literally, I was like, you need to rein this in. So just thinking about the way that, how how would they stop? Like, what would they stop? When, when it's your own blood, you will literally die if you keep writing in this magic. So that was interesting to me to kind of, put those limits on the blood magic as well. It's really interesting that you mentioned that it's a language-based magic too, that there are these two things that have to work in tandem with each other. Um, but, you know, that does, it strikes me as being those two things, I think people wouldn't naturally put them together. Like language people think of as, you know, 
I suppose, a kind of a scholarly educated form of, of performing magic, whereas blood seems visceral and, and very, you know, a kind of almost a form of body horror. So I'm just really intrigued why and how you put these two things together. Yeah, I think the the interesting thing for me was thinking about education. So everyone has blood, but not everyone knows the language. And um, particularly in this world where only red-blooded can use magic, that education piece was really interesting because it allowed me to explore, okay, how do you do you still have the right to be red-blooded as, you know, the, the highest caste system if you don't understand that language? And and the power of education in the world is important because um, the clear-bloodeds who are the lowest, the ghostings, the lowest caste system, aren't given any education at all. The blue-blooded are educated until 10 years old and then basically sent to fields and plantations. And then the red-blooded can be within the education system for up to 20 years and they all choose what they want to do. So having this language-based system was very important. It was a comment on how education and power are so intertwined and how, you know, even if you have blood, if you can't physically write or you're not taught how to do this, you can't, you can't do the magic. That's, it's really refreshing to, you know, to have a, a fantasy world that, that focuses uh, on education, um, you know, in such a poignant way, because it reminds me of um, something I always quote, like another a, a writer who I really re- admire, um, Paige L. Christie, who wrote Dragonweather. You know, that's that's a story where women have been denied education and you know they end up going away they discover the whole truth of the world is it's like a big lie um but the you know her major message in the book is that if you give if you educate women and you give them the tools to educate others you you have the the structure of you know people who can then overthrow the the centuries old patriarchy that has you know destroyed the world or at least destroyed it for one half you know of of its population um and i i kind of feel like you know we talk a lot in reality about the power of education and the necessity of education but it's really refreshing to see it explored in fantasy because i feel like fantasy has a tendency to be a bit more showy in its magic systems and you know something like saying this person is educated uh, is not quite as showy as as some fantasy goes so i really i really like the idea that you know you've embraced that and incorporated it in because it's so important yeah it was it was um i think just building the world that i did i was so so aware of the social constructs and the the world that I was building, the education system, the politics, the religion, and how they all intertwine. So for me, that was um, something that I really wanted to represent. I will absolutely say that in book two, I get very showy, which was just so much fun to write. But it was, you know, the magic is quite, it's it's silent, you know, it's, it's important to the world in the final strife, but it's it's a silent, quiet um, importance that doesn't, you know, I, I bloody love dragons. Um, and I, I kind of wish I had got dragons, but it's not that kind of book. I do have giant lizards that people ride to be fair, but (laughs) that's, that's pretty (laughs) dragony. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But yeah, I think it was, I was just trying to make a comment on so much more than, you know, a wand and 
and um, dragons, although bloody love dragons. All right. I was actually going to go off piste a little bit. <laughs> Do it. Just, <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked about how you, you really thought about the tropes in fantasy that you wanted to sort of overturn or, or at least have a dialogue with. And I was just curious about that because, you know, on the one hand, tropes are just there's so much fun yeah. and you know that's part of the reason we love fantasy yeah. and sci-fi you know that we love those tropes and we keep going back to those things because we love them but at the same time you know one of the reasons for this podcast is to acknowledge that many of those tropes are laden with quite problematic stereotypes or behaviors and so on so i you know i found it really interesting that you were really trying to have that dialogue with classic fantasy tropes and you know I was just wondering if you might tell us a little bit yeah. more about some of the ones you you really wanted to play with and like what it was that you really wanted to get into yeah oh god I, lo- I love tropes so much like they they it's it like you say it's the reason we like fantasy because fantasy is so laden with tropes that um it's the reason we go back for it I, you know a genre is just a collection of tropes and so thinking through when I was writing the final strife it actually this came quite naturally um and I was writing Sila and Sila had always been my main character Sila she's red-blooded and she had always been a rebel she was always going to be the rebel who tried to take down the empire it was always going to be like the chosen one and all of a sudden I realized hang on she's she's actually just too high to be the chosen one like she is way too high on drugs she's drank way too much alcohol she can't be the chosen one And that was the first time that I thought, huh, I can really play around with tropes here. And so that was the first kind of trope that was like, okay, tick, I've done that. I know I've subverted it. Now let's look at it, the others. And I think um, the mental one was another one that I was really interested in. Uh, You know, there's no kind of old white guy mentor. There's a black woman who is struck with withdrawal symptoms from from the drug addiction that she'd had there is no white knight there's a black woman a lot of the tropes I played around some that I just just wanted to have like uh, kind of frenemies to lovers was really important to me because that's just a trope that I love and I just wanted to play that one true but I was I was aware of all the tropes and I think that's where it makes it really fun and refreshing sometimes. And you can, and when you read a novel, you can be like, oh, okay, this, this, this author is very aware of what they're doing. And it's, it'd been the first time I had ever done that in any piece of writing I'd ever done to kind of approach it in that way. And it was just, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. We, we wholly approve of tropes and having discussions with them, dialogues with them within the writing as well. We're uh... We love a bit of that. So. <laughs> we, we totally do. And it's really nice to hear a guest say, oh, yes, I engaged with those tropes deliberately because we asked this question a few times and, and authors tend to say, oh, well, no, I, you know, uh, I didn't, you know, I just did that without thinking or, you know, like, and, they, <laughs> and oh, I want to avoid tropes and stuff. So it's, re- it's really nice to, like, be able to have this honest conversation about the fact that, you know, tropes exist. We love them. Sometimes we want to play yeah, them. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, because this this was just literally it's it, the book is my lifeblood like I literally was like blah like I just wrote everything that just like came to me and because I'm such a fantasy lover 
I, I know about tropes. I'm aware of them. So I really wanted to play with it because, from a, like a fan perspective. It was like I was writing my own fan fiction. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was like kind of playing around with that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I really do love them. And I think being aware of tropes in this, in this world, you know, we're quite saturated in the fantasy market, but looking at tropes and playing with them is, is really quite an interesting thing. And speaking of like tropes and, and things that we're used to seeing, traditional fantasy novels don't tend to center their narratives on female characters, let alone three female characters. So (laughs) what do you think changes for like a lot of these traditional fantasy tropes when you kind of change, you know, gender flip and, and when you bring in and center female experience? Yeah, I think it's interesting because Gender is an interesting concept within the world that I created as well. I was exploring a lot of Indigenous um, non-binary spaces as I was writing the world. And one of the things that I was very keen to explore, actually in later edits, um, particularly it was, I did a lot of work around that, um, around gender, was how do I create a world where there isn't, there isn't a binary? Technically, I wouldn't, actually then have any pronouns in the book but then you also have to translate the book into our world so so although you know and and they are women um Hassa one of the three main main characters is also trans and that isn't that isn't an issue because there are a lot of issues going on in this world but gender is is not one of them and centering three women was so important to me because again like the previous books I had tried to write in the past they had always been a white man. And I was like, why are you doing this? And I know why I was doing it. It was because my bookshelves lined, were lined with, you know, not just white authors, but white male authors who had white protagonists, uh, white male protagonists. And so having a a woman, you know, three women, three black women in the centre of this world was just so important to me. It was important to young me. And I, was, I wasn't necessarily writing the book for publication. It was just, I definitely wanted to get it published, but it was, okay, if I had this book, how would I feel? And to see three women centred was really special to imagine myself as a reader. And, you know, it's, I, I already have, you know, just one person messaging me when that happened with early um, copies of about six months ago saying, thank you so much, you know, as a, as a black reader, I never get to see this, not as much, um, which thankfully we, we seem to be in a great space at the moment. It is increasing, but it has been, it's been dry out there for a while. And just that one message was just amazing. You know, like that's all I needed, just one person to be like, wow, um, this is, this feels good. This feels amazing to see three women leading, being the stars of a book. And and that's how I felt writing it, I guess. You were saying about engaging with the black experience, an experience that is not typically explored within traditional fantasy novels. But did you encounter any specifically white fantasy tropes? I mean, like the, obviously the one that jumps out at me is, is the white saviour narrative, which is extremely popular um, in fantasy and science fiction, or at least, you know, it has been um, since the days of Tolkien. Um, were there any other tropes or things that we we think of as fantasy tropes that, that you feel are kind of directly intrinsically linked to the white experience rather than, you know, so they're, they're racially linked? 
it was re- one of the things that was really fascinating to me in edits. Um, so like I've talked about, I was very self-aware and I felt like I had really explored interesting themes in this novel. And my first round of edits, my US editor, um, Trisha Nawani, who is incredible at Delray um, US, she was like, Sarah, I think you've inadvertently played into the white saviour trope. Even though you don't have any white people, the way that you're treating uh, a particular ghosting in this world, you've, you've created a, a white, a white saviour through your caste systems. And I was like, I was absolutely floored. I was like, how have you done this? And it just, it was, it was so fascinating to me that I had managed to do that without any white people. And also, you know, I'd still, cause you know, within the world, there is a caste system, which is parallel to, to having whiteness to an extent um, in the world. And the fact that I'd managed to do it, it scared me because I was like, I am so indoctrinated in this in in Western culture that I didn't even spot it. So that was something that I was like, wow, you've been so, so aware of everything that you're doing. And then you've done this by mistake. Um, so I'm so glad for her, because my, my editor, because I managed to write that out, thankfully. But yeah, that, you know, I, 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 I do think a lot about the magical Negro trope um, and how, you know, someone appears and, and fixes it with magic and um, they're always black and then they disappear. And I think um, I was aware of that trope going into it. And so when Sila and Anor do meet up, who are essentially the chosen one upside down and the mentor figure upside down. When they do come together, I was very aware of making sure there's no magical Negro trope because that is something, you know, someone just appears and fixes things and disappears again. Hassa could have been that, who's the third character, uh, third protagonist. But thankfully, I was very aware of it and I worked with my editor to make sure I didn't do that. So yeah, there are absolutely tropes that I were conscious of and some that I was not. Thank you for sharing that. That's really incredible. And as you say, also terrifying because it just shows the level of indoctrination that we all grow up with from day one. You know, this is what society does. And while that kind of, when people say, well, I'm not racist, it's like, actually we're all racist. (laughs) You know, you might think you are not, but you are because of the way you see the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And I think that it can, you know, spill over into to gender as well, just from, you know, like I've done it myself in my own writing, popping men into traditionally masculine roles for no yeah. reason when it's a fantasy world. It doesn't even need to follow the gender binary or at least the structure of, of how we've, our very binary society that we live in. Um, and that's scary. It's like, well, why have I done that? You know, even though I'm aware of it and I've become more aware of it, you, you still find yourself falling into the group that you've been brought up. Yeah. In. And I think it's really interesting what you're saying about gender there, because I recognize this in myself quite early on I was like why have you just made the nurse a woman and so I started playing around with it so I would however the character appeared normally side characters appeared on on the page I just flipped the gender and that was the way I kept challenging myself because I was like you you are so you're so messed up by the society we live in you I, I actually can't come into it without being misogynistic in some way because that's the way the world that we live in so I had to really kind of challenge myself with every single word that I wrote to make sure that I and 
and absolutely I will not have got everything right, but I tried. <laughs> I tried to challenge um, the world we, we live in. Oh, I think it's a really good approach. And, you know, even though you think on the surface, it sounds like a simple solution to, to like, you know, an over, overly simple, it, it's not actually when it comes down to it the idea of just gender flipping something because just the, that very act you know as you were saying forces you to think in a different way and the minute you do that you kind of see other opportunities opening before you and i think it it does start with something simple yeah. you know because like i think i think that essentially we are it's very hard to escape how we've been brought up and the, the media plays an enormous role in this, you know, the things we consume as children and, you know, and those are our formative years. Yeah. <laughs> this is really important stuff. And by the time we get to our age where we can, you know, we, we do have that level of awareness. I think using these, you know, actually fairly straightforward exercises to just stop and just stop yourself in your tracks and just give yourself space to think it through. They're just really, really helpful, you know, as, you know, writers, artists, creators. Yeah, I agree. May I ask, you've got all these quite heavy ideas that you're tackling. You know, this is no small feat. <laughs> <laughs> you, you really made it hard for yourself. I really did, yeah. <laughs> but then... You've also, you know, as you mentioned, you've got this sort of queer normative, there's there's no issue around gender at all in your world. And like, why did you, you want to have like shine a light so much on some things by, you know, creating prejudice, discrimination metaphors, while on the others, you kind of wrote them out of your world? Mainly because it would have been so dark <laughs> it is already pretty dark and I think I I just wanted some queer joy and as someone who is a queer black woman it was so important to me to have some sort of joy on the page and something that you know I'm, I'm creating an entire world that there, there was something that I wanted to do specifically to parallel our world with uh, race and explore colonialism and history and, you know, as a, I, w I was very much focusing on oppression and I just, I just couldn't, I, d I just wanted to make it really queer normative. I just, it was something that automatically came to the page, which was such a joy because I needed joy as I was writing this book. <laughs> um, there, you know, there, there is, there is a lot of hope in it, but uh, having the queer normative space was really important to me because I didn't I, I haven't seen that done that much in books and I think you know you can only <laughs> you can only be so heavy maybe in a, in a future novel I'll explore that but I think for me it was about being you know queer normative yeah it was it was really nice to see um but you do yes it's dark but you do play into things like dark humor <laughs> so to, yeah. to lighten the mood every now and then yeah I mean it's, it's quite dark humor but <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely it's it's funny because I've been talking to a few authors recently and you, you just really can never gauge like when you if you're actually funny as an author so you're just like writing these words in your study just like ha 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 so funny and then actually your editor's like no this is not funny whatsoever <laughs> so I'm glad you saw some humor in there 
Oh yeah. But I'm also like a huge MASH fan from way back. Oh, so classic. like the kind of dark, you know, oh, we're like operating on these, all these kids that shouldn't be in a war and everything's <laughs> dark. And now we're drinking martinis we've made through from like the nurse's stockings. Like, I don't Yeah. Yeah. Classic. <laughs> I'm a fan of that. So. I just wanted to ask you, cause we hadn't touched on, you know, another kind of aspect of your world building, which is, you know, again, not something we see as often, but we are seeing more of it, um, is the, you know, your mythology that has inspired the world, that it's not the traditional European medieval <laughs> basis of most of the fantasy genre, yeah. let's yeah. be honest, <laughs> to this point. Um, so I wanted to ask you about myth and what mythology means to you, you know, as a creator of, you know, of, of a fantasy world and how you use that in 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 your work yeah absolutely I think um it's really interesting so I was my background's really mixed my um my father was Sudanese um, my mother Ghanaian and uh, English and then I was raised in the Middle East and then moved to Sheffield so that kind of complete you know chaos of of cultures, which was amazing. I was so lucky. You know, my mum was raised Christian, my father raised Muslim. I was taken to the mosque and the church. I had these stories of religion and myth. You know, I had Anansi the spider one day from uh, my mum and the tannin from my father. You know, there was, stories were such an important part of growing up. And the concept of myths as well was really fascinating to me because I, I hadn't really heard much about African myths or uh, Arabian myths apart from uh, the classics. And I, th- I think some of the stuff that I explored as I was writing The Final Strife was an education piece for me. There are so many things that are loosely based on myths, you know, and Nancy the Spider's got to make his way in there, which is just a very personal thing for me. And the tannin as well um, plays quite a big role, which is essentially a sea sea creature, plays quite a big role in book two. And so these kind of myths were there. I I knew of them through my childhood, but I didn't know enough. And I thought, wow, why didn't I create a world that has those influences? Because it's so unique. Like my, my upbringing upbringing is so unique and um, I'm so lucky to have experienced it but there are so many multicultural families out there and uh, I wanted to kind of create this safe space of a world that is is a mix of everything the food in in particular was interesting to me that was something that um, I love to play around with on the page so one minute Sila will be eating plantain the next minute she'll be having mulahia these are two food groups that are from ones from Ghana, ones from Sudan. It's it's so wildly different. And you would never get that normally. But I had that growing up. So very, very few people are ever going to get that reference. But I know it and 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 that's why it's special because it feels like this world exists out of my blood. You know, it, it exists out of the roots of my tree, um, my family tree. And I think that's really powerful to feel when I was when I was writing it. I think it's also really important we have diverse books that challenge different aspects of the world we live in. I love my European fantasy. Absolutely love it. I, I love an elf riding on a horse down a cobbled street. But how about we have 
sand dunes or we have palm trees or we have different environments because if not we we have a very narrow view of because fantasy fantasy is always some sort of parallel like it is a different world but it's always some sort of parallel to the one that we're living in and if we are looking just inwardly to the western world it, it's it's just it's not it's not healthy for open-mindedness um a liberal society and i think making creating worlds that exist outside of that is really important like don't get me wrong it's still a western book i am western educated i you know i have the privilege of of being able to sit in my london house and and write you know full time but that's something that i'm aware of that i think that we should still be able to see far more diverse books you know um out there not just from the western world everywhere being translated into english and we still we're still not quite there yet yeah completely we absolutely need more diverse books 100% tagline <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah no i'm i'm all for sand dunes and palm trees and and hot places as opposed to this yeah like kind of drab wintry cobbled streets that we're quite used to in traditional fantasy because the other thing in the flip side of this is that you know when the and I air quotes exotic places appear in medieval European fantasy they appear with all of the racial stereotypes and all of the geographical stereotypes that we expect them to appear with I'm thinking of David Eddings (laughs) Um, but (laughs) there's a long list I could add to that name yeah, absolutely. There, there, and and it's the othering of of different cultures that is prevalent in standard European. I say standard with air quotes. I was actually doing the air quotes, but I realised you couldn't see me. Standard European fantasy, and yeah, it, it, and I think the more diverse books we not just publish because they are out there. It's about giving them the marketing spend about giving them the platform that publishers are not quite doing yet. I'm so, so privileged and lucky to have been given that, but there are so many amazing books out there that are just not, and um, I just wish it wasn't so. Yeah, I, it's it's totally the case because, um, you know, we see, obviously we're, we've been going since 2016 um, and we we now get approached by enormous quantity of publishers and we we kind of almost have our, our pick of guests um which is is extremely telling because we definitely don't get offered as many authors of color as we would like yeah. and also yeah, lgbtq authors again not quite as slightly more but again not you know we're not hitting the the kind of parity point which we would really like to be aiming for um and i think that totally ties in with yes these books are out there but as you say out there isn't enough we need them to be pushed we need them to be marketed we need people to actually find them and see them read them engage with them and then talk about them and i think that's that's the bit that's the hurdle that we still you know are having trouble with yeah absolutely and i think there's i I was thinking a lot about it with all the won't say his name jp stuff that has been going on on twitter is that it's it's not just about deciding to publish uh people of color it's then supporting them on the other side because it is harder 
to publish a black person than it is to publish a white person. Just basic stuff like if they want to market on TikTok, TikTok suppresses black voices. So then the publisher has to do more. So it, it's just it, th- those tiny things have such an incremental impact on, on impact on resources that not a lot of people realise and publishers need to get behind that to be able to support people of colour to, to give them that platform. I don't really know how to say anything other than I completely agree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. You know, it's interesting, as Lucy said, you know, we, we tend to not to be offered as many books by uh, authors of colour and things like that. And so we find ourselves in this bizarre situation where we have publishers constantly reaching out to us and asking us, oh, will you feature our authors? And yet we're going, still going back to them and saying, actually, could we feature this other one who like nobody knows about? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. I'm so glad that you do that. That's just special. It's, it's our little way of doing something, I guess, that, you know, so it's nice. But thank you so much for, for coming and chatting to us. It's been lovely to have you on the show. Thank and you. Yeah, we're really, really excited to um, see more from you. And it's great to see a book, you know, centering on three women, protagonists, three black women, and in a queer normative society, which is just amazing, just, you know, despite the world being very, very dark, there is some real hope there and it was really nice to see thank you and thank you for having me this has been an absolute honor um i'm such a big fan so yeah this has been really special breaking the glass slipper is written and produced by megan lee charlotte bond and lucy Hounsom. please help us spread the word subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform we want to hear from you let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of breaking the glass slipper